Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Before we get the show rolling, I just want to report that this show was actually recorded during the month that we were observing Bob Dylan's 80th birthday, and we meant to have it as part of that. But we got some really good guests and some really good topics that we wanted to deal with instead, so we just pushed this one up until right now. Here it is. How about we talk about an album today? Well, I uh, that's a good uh, that's a good way of opening the show because I know what album we're going to talk about. Today. <laughs> well, that's for the listeners. You know the behind the scenes stuff. The listeners don't yet. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be discussing Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde because <laughs> we have to start talking about something at some point. So. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. this is what our fourth episode about Dylan in our Bob Dylan at '80s series. Yeah, and it's also our fifth. Let's talk about an album. Is it is it our fifth? We've talked about full I albums. I believe so, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And this is worthy of that too. I mean, not just because of the of it's Bob Dylan month, but uh, you know, this is a there are four radio hits on this record for goodness sake, you know, which is something I hadn't I always forget. Um when I worked in classic rock, this was this this is used a lot to tell people, "Hey, we play Bob Dylan." Um and there are four songs on here that I used to hear constantly. And so, and I also remember as a kid, when it came out, it seems like a lot of adults had this record. There are five singles on this album. Yeah. One of Us Must Know, Sooner or Later, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, I Want You, Just Like a Woman, and Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. Five singles. But also, we used to play Stuck Inside of Mobile. That's on the radio, too. Yeah, but that's long. And and so that's one of the interesting things about this. Dylan had done a couple of long songs previously, like a Rolling Stones, what, about seven minutes, Desolation Rose, more than 10 minutes. And here he comes out with three long songs. Two of them are seven minutes, seven and a half, Revisions of Johanna, Stuck Inside of Mobile, 705, and then Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, 1123. Interestingly, those three songs, you could put them on one side of an album, and there's actually a relationship across Bob Dylan's long songs. Some time ago, I made a playlist of all his long songs, and I figured seven minutes or longer, right? And there's something in the way he does the long songs that they're just, they're more relaxed in the way you hear them, you know? Like, they, uh, they feel like he's sitting in the living room just spinning a song, spinning a tale. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a roots thing to that. There's some kind of... Uh, they're like little epics, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, and not just because they're long. I mean, there are plenty of long songs that aren't epics, but these usually are, are stories that are uh, pretty epic in their in their feel. Anyway, I'll link to the Wikipedia article about Blonde on Blonde, and there's something here. So Dylan recorded some of these in New York. Then he went to Nashville, worked with some session musicians, but also with Al Cooper and Robbie Robertson, and there's a story here. On February 16, the session began at 6 p.m., and Dylan was just working on his lyrics, the musicians were playing cards. At 4 a.m., he calls the musicians, he outlines the structure of the song. 
So they start Sad Odd Lady of the Lowlands. And Kenny Buttry, one of the musicians on the piece, says, if you notice that record, that thing after like the second chorus starts building and building like crazy. And everyone's just peeking it up because we've thought, man, this is it. This is going to be the last chorus. We've got to put everything into it we can. And he played another harmonica solo, went back down to another verse, and the dynamics had to drop down to a verse kind of feel. After about 10 minutes of this thing, we're cracking up at each other at what we're doing. I mean, we peaked five minutes ago. Where do we go from here? There you go. It's, it's almost like he wanted to beat them into submission. It's almost like he wanted to see, see how far a song could go. Yeah, and if you look at his song Murder Most Foul from last year's Rough and Rowdy Ways album, that's almost 17 minutes long, and it has that same feel. It's just, like you said, someone in the living room by the fire telling a story. Highlands on Time Out of Mine is the same kind of thing. It's this sort of round where it just keeps going around and going around and going around. Hurricane. Hurricane was a song I dreaded playing on the radio because it was just the same thing over and over again. It yeah, was a hit. Yeah. It was a radio hit. So, you know, these things yeah. work for him. But So those three songs to me, oddly, are the core of the album in the sense that you have to remember that he made this up as he was going along. He didn't go with a plan to do all this, right, as the, the extract that I just read from Wikipedia. He was just working on lyrics. He said, we've got this song and, okay, we're going to try it. This is a really interesting album because you've got a wide variety of types of songs. So, you know, it opens with Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, which is one of these jingly jangly type songs. You've got a couple of things where you've got a lot of organ going on with Al Cooper. And then you've got like the, the slow, sad-eyed Lady of the Lowlands or Visions of Johanna, which are, which are not only epics musically, but lyrically. These, these long songs on this record are just... They're poetry. They're songs that go well beyond normal songs on the radio. I'm glad you like the longer ones because those are the ones I care less for, even though I recognize, you know, they're, they're awesome things. I like the shorter songs and the funnier songs. The whole album kicks off with this let's parade to the revival tent sort of everybody must get stoned. I asked you about this recently. and I said it's not about people getting high. It's obviously about being persecuted by, you know, the the uber lords and uh, you know no matter what you do they're going to hold you back and then later on in in another song in the future he sings you got to serve somebody everybody's got to serve somebody so it's almost like the inverse of this it's like you know you can you can work against the man or and ha or you can work with the man in some ways, that song sounds to me like it's almost a novelty song. Yeah, it, well, it's come across that, that, that way. That he starts the album with something that doesn't sound like a Dylan song. Right, I, and I think a lot of people think also because of the of the stoned pun, that a lot of people think, oh, it's like, you know, it's that hippie sort of sound. And I remember when it came out, that's what people thought. There's a, uh, there's a cover of I it. I don't think you remember when it came out because you were only seven years old when seven it came out. Seven or eight out. years old. But like I said, a lot of adults had this record. And this okay. was one, this, that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's a march. It's a, you yeah. know, it's in 6-8. It's an easy song to hear and go, oh, that's kind of a cute song. And that's yeah. the way it's always been in my head. Yeah. When I've listened to it as an adult, it's like, what are you, why are you opening the album with this parade to the revival tent? What are you trying to tell us? Yeah. and But then again, Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat kind of almost has the same sound as it, too. So maybe they were just playing with different sounds. But I, I still think it's an interesting... It's the short songs I think there are some great, great things in. Well, let's talk about opening songs, because Side 2 opens with I Want You, 
which was a hugely popular song. And remember, let's think of this as record sides. Let's not think of it as a stream or a CD. Let's remember that each side of a record has a beginning, middle, and an end. And particularly the beginning is the moment when you've put it on the turntable, put the needle on, sat down, maybe rolled up a blunt, picked up a glass of wine or whatever. And it's setting the tone for the next four songs or five songs. I think the first side is great (laughs) in that sense. I just love that first side. I just love the first side. It's funny. I don't think of these as four. See, I'm not as familiar with the. I, I think I said this already. I'm not as not familiar with it. I'm not as deep into it as you are. I'm a, I'm a Highway 61 revisited guy. And I think a lot of people would get into a wrestling match over this album and that album being the best. Although I think this is a better album. Um, I like listening to Highway 61 revisited more than I like listening to this one because of the long songs. It's like, what's that long song doing there? i got to skip over. It's like Grateful Dead, too. I can't do long songs in Grateful Dead, which is the whole point of listening to Grateful Dead is to listen to their long songs. Yeah, but Highway 61 has Desolation Row. Yeah, I know, but that's, a, that's I, 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 I think of that as an exception. Okay. You know, like uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking on Sticky Fingers is an exception. It's just a, it's a thing. It's just the way it worked out. Yeah. But look at the timing. Like a Rolling Stone, 6 minutes 13. Tombstone Blues, 5.56. Ballad of a Thin Man, 5.58. Then there's two songs at five and a half, one at four minutes, one at 3.30, and one at 3.19. So let's say under five minutes is short songs. So Highway 61 is majority long songs. Yeah. No, I, I'm not against the long songs. It's just that I find them tedious. I want to get to the next. You know how I am. I'm just I'm, I'm high on coffee all the time. I want to get to the next. <laughs> I want to get to the next song. Well, I want to get to the next track. That's what We should point out that, remember, we've recently talked a couple of times about bands that basically made two or three albums and then lived off them for 50 years. And we talked about, yes, Bob Dylan made three albums in 15 months, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, and then came back with a masterpiece in 1975, then came back with another masterpiece a decade later, another decade, and so on and so on and so on. And it's really interesting that that someone who crystallized so much in such a short period of time was able to come back. Of course, the, the whole story after this is the record came out in June. He had this motorcycle accident. He stopped touring. He, he'd been doing these whirlwind tours for a couple of years, and he kind of retreated to Woodstock. So it, it's like he... I hate to use the expression, he shot his wad with these three records, and then it was like he just had to recuperate. I don't know. Some of the, that's when he went to Woodstock. Isn't that when the basement tapes were recorded? A lot of that stuff is happening then? Yeah, but that that was just a pickup band. That that was a pickup band. They were just doing it for fun. But that stuff is interesting, too. But he wasn't doing it to release an album, because remember, that wasn't officially released until, what, after the bootleg had circulated, I think in 75, after the bootleg had been circulating for a long time. But even so, that's what he did, right? That's what he was, even though it wasn't meant for, maybe it wasn't meant for public consumption, it still gives you an yeah, idea but what they think. That was playing for fun. And this this stuff, when you hear him in the studio on that cutting edge box set, where you hear all these different takes in the studio... You hear that this wasn't for fun, that this was serious. This is an artist. You're always working. Oh, no yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. No question. Yeah. So getting back to long songs and record sides, it is kind of interesting that Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands at, what, 11 minutes and change takes up all of side four. And you have to think one of two things. 
either he wanted it to just be that song on the side, and maybe he originally wanted it to go to 15 minutes or longer, or maybe he had nothing else to put there. <laughs> now, there are a half a dozen outtakes from these sessions that are on various bootleg series albums, so he would have had more stuff, but he ends with one side of a record, one side of four on a double album with a single song at 11 minutes 23. The semiotics of that are interesting. What is... Who was the president of the record company? CBS, right? Uh, this was Columbia. They must have said, okay, fine, we'll take it. Because um, he was at the top of the game here. It's really interesting, though, you're right, because he could have easily had a 20-minute side. That would have been perfectly fine, perfectly listenable. He could have had another 11-minute song, and it would have been great. But he didn't have one in him, or he didn't think that another 11 minutes worth of music was worth getting on the record. And also, what was what's the deal with double albums at this time in history? I mean, what, what are people thinking that double albums are? Yeah, so we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago because we were thinking maybe we can do an episode on double albums. This is sort of the first popular double album. That's what I was wondering. It's, one, it's certainly one of the first. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of discussion about this because, so according to Wikipedia, I'll link to this article in the show notes, one of the first live double albums, as well as one of the earliest double albums featuring non-classical music, was the famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert by Benny Goodman. Now, there had been double albums before for classical music and opera and all that sort of thing. This record was only released in 1950 because, remember, it had to have the, we had to have LPs to be able to do this. In 1956, one of the first examples consisting of new studio recordings is Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook. And Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, released in June 66, is considered to be one of the first double albums in popular music with complete original recordings by the artist. And so that's what sets it off. Funnily, Frank Zappa released the Mothers of Invention's Freak Out one week later on June 27, 66. So there were two people working on double albums at the same time. Yeah. And it's pretty much chance that Dylan's came out first. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So I, I'm wondering what the record companies thought about the, the prospects. I mean, for goodness sake, Bob Dylan, I understand a double album. But Frank Zappa, why are we letting Frank Zappa record a double album? <laughs> I'm just wondering what the philosophy, what the economic philosophy was, what the idea about selling one was. What did it sell for? Did a double album sell for double the price of a record? That's no, I don't recall paying double. It's more like one and a half. Yeah, right. Me too. Unless it was a Clash record when it was the price of a single record. I think the idea was probably bigger is better. And that these are artists who, well, not Zappa yet, because he wasn't popular enough then, but, but Dylan was popular enough that people would have bought anything. Interestingly, on Freak Out, side four is just one song, 12 minutes, 22. Side three has about 14 and a half minutes. So they could have stuck it all on three sides and left side four blank, which would have been a really Zappa thing, wouldn't it? That, was a, that would have been a very Zappa thing. It's like, here, corporate scum, <laughs> take this. We're going to waste the whole side of your... Anyway, but so but Zappa, Dylan kind of did that too. Dylan kind of did that too. He kind of shortchanged him. Of some, yeah, but Zappa's album is about sixty minutes, and Dylan's is just under seventy-three minutes. So it's not shortchanging. It, it's just the one side. Because remember, you got three long songs at seven to eleven minutes and whatever. So seventy-two minutes, just long enough to fit on early CDs. So he must have been seeing the future there. So what I find interesting now. Bob Dylan at 80 is we can, and we talked about this with Jeff Slate a couple episodes ago, link in the show notes, we can nail down, you know, 
what are the top five Dylan albums? And some people would say that these three albums from 65 and 66 are definitely in the top five. I think to make a selection, you've got to cover different periods and, you know, Blood on the Tracks has to be included, Time Out of Mind, etc. It's so hard. It's so hard when you're a casual Dylan fan. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a casual Dylan fan. I'm, I'm good till about Blood on the Tracks. And then I start to lose... Yeah. The string. It's it's and there are albums that I know and the albums some albums you'll mention I never heard of or I've completely yeah. forgotten about. But yeah. these early it's true albums because I really like a lot. After Blood on the Tracks and well, Desire. You know Desire. Yeah, okay, yep, It's after Desire. that. When he goes to the Born Again period, they weren't as popular. Stuff in the nineties, you know, it it's up and down. I mean, there was some great stuff, but there was some, you know, not so great. The the thing about this period, though, is it really does mark a pause in his career. As I mentioned earlier, he's got this motorcycle accident. Some people think there really wasn't an accident. It was just an excuse that he wanted to just stop. And, you know, when you see him in these interviews and these documentaries, do, doing these funny interviews, sitting at a table with a bunch of a bunch of reporters, some of them like smoking pipes, right, with these with these tweed suits on and everything, asking, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And he's just playing the clown. You kind of think he got tired of it because of because of the the tension, the stress of being famous, the drugs. John Lennon and Paul McCartney and George Harrison and Ringo Starr, same thing. They would sit there and they, same thing, right? The sarcasm, yep. the 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 wacky responses, the let's see how they'll react to me saying this now. And then they said, "We've had enough." Yeah. Of it. And they had their own motor, their metaphorical motorcycle accident. They just said, "We're not going to do this yeah. anymore." So that's an interesting thing, too. I, I think a lot of people at that time started to maybe look inward and say, it's not just about creating a popular album. It's, it's pop music can be more thoughtful and they can, you know, you can, there's more to explore. And just creating a pop record and going out and selling it in arenas is... is when did that sort of press conference end? I know I've seen some footage of Led Zeppelin doing that in the mid-70s. You know, the band behind a table with a whole bunch of journalists in one place firing off questions. Sometimes it would be in an airport. Yeah, like I'm trying to think. You never seem like Madonna or, well, maybe in Europe, but not here. Uh, you know, any of those 80s people, maybe, you know, maybe, I don't know. They would never sit down for something like that and the flashbulbs going off and at yeah. the airport, you know, that sort of thing. That's... Who cares? Madonna came on an airplane. Well, no, I think at the airport was just a place that they could get the artist together with all the journalists in one spot. So it's probably just for convenience. But it's interesting that that stopped and it could have stopped because of the ridiculousness of doing these interviews. Sure. You know, the, the musicians really don't care what they say. And maybe they just all got to the point where they just didn't want to talk to the press because what's the point anyway? So, so in the early days of rock and roll, we're, we're in 66 when Bond on Bond comes out. People need to be exposed to rock and roll. This is so new that, the, you know, the mainstream press was talking about this. Well, the guy with the pipe, right? The, the, the exactly. Arts, it's the arts columnist from the local <laughs> newspaper. And, By the way, can you tell me, why'd you, where do you boys get those haircuts? What's with the trousers? Cover photo. So the cover photo is interesting. The, both the cover photo and the, and the fold out, the gatefold of the, the album, but the cover photo in particular, because he's blurry and all sorts of people speculate, oh, he's tripping. And it's like, wow, we want to show him tripping. The photographer who's... Da, 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 da. <laughs> 
the photographer said, we were just cold and the two of us were shivering. There were other images that, there, that were sharp and in focus, but to his credit, Dylan liked that photograph. And that, to me, is the, the quintessential Dylan statement of presenting himself as a blur. out of focus blur. He's not actually out of focus. He's more blurred than out of well, focus. It's, not just, uh, it's that, just not a lot of detail. That's all. It's just kind of soft. It's, uh, no, it's blurry. Oh, absolutely it, it blurry, is blurry. But it's not, it's not blurry so that it's, he's unrecognizable. No, it's blurry so that he's not sharp. He's not clear. Yeah. He's, okay. he's vague. Vague. Yeah, that's it's a good vague. one. Yeah. And it's a good portrait. There's a really interesting color palette in that portrait. Really earth tones, all these browns and ochres and, and a little bit of black and gray. There's no, it's like a cloudy day. There's no color. There's no blue, green, red, yellow, anything like that. And technically, this is a breakup album. I find it hard to think of Dylan albums as breakup albums, this and Blood on the Tracks. But it is, you know, there's songs that are songs about him breaking up. Yeah. And and that almost monochromatic cover seems to add to that. Yeah. If I, you think about that. I, I, I've always liked his expression because before I knew the record very well, you'd see that fit. Like I said, a lot of adults had this record. You'd see that face everywhere. And until the, his greatest hits album came along, that was like the, the the face of Dylan all the time for me. So being blurry seemed to make sense. It's like, oh, I get it. Well, not uh, as we said, he's vague. Yeah. Um, but I also like the way it opened up. Right. To like a pinup of Bob Dylan. Yeah. And you yeah. put it sideways and you got him standing up from what about his thighs up to, to his head. So it's the same photo, but just cropped differently. That was That's an interesting approach. I think one of the popular things about this record back in the day was that people would use it to get the seeds out of their weed. Yeah, it's like along you know, with... Gatefold albums are really useful for yeah, that. Yeah, it's like Skull and Roses, this one. Um, yeah. yeah, Frampton Comes Alive. And it wasn't one of those unipacks. It had to be an actual double album with the sleeve yeah, on yeah. each side. Which was the Double Zeppelin album? Physical Graffiti. Houses of Holy, isn't that a What do we know about album? Led Zeppelin? <laughs> exactly. Well, Gatefold albums like... Um, Court of the Crimson King, that was really yeah. popular, that sort of right. thing. Um, was Brain Salad Surgery, was that a gatefold? I don't know. Didn't that also have one of those tricky things where you, the, if you moved it, the thing changed? Like, ooh la la, by the faces, no, the, the, fr the front, No, the front had a thing where you could open it from yeah, the middle toward right. the yeah, sides, and you'd expose the skull behind it. It was like, what do they call it? At um, the end of Mad Magazine, those things that you fold it up, <laughs> it's kind of like that. You'd get a different message. You know, the guy who made them just died I recently. know. I saw Argonez. Isn't that his name? Is that who it was? Sergio Argonez, yeah. The Fold-In. Yeah, The Fold-In. It was in virtually every Mad Magazine since 1964. Yep. So Dylan probably was aware yeah. of The Fold-In. No, but that has nothing to do with brain salad surgery, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> but anyway. I'll bet Dylan read Mad Magazine. You know, he was reading like Apollinaire and Rambo and things like that. So he... That just... Yeah, but, you know, Mad Magazine, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's clever stuff in there. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on this podcast. Uh, yes, you have. Okay, well, I won't say it then. <laughs> 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 All right, so Blonde on Blonde, I, you know, I kind of— Oh, I have another question. Why—what does Blonde on Blonde mean? He says that it was just something that someone came up with. Like, just like many good. of the titles of the songs, and in fact, on that Cutting Edge box set, you can listen to him in the studio. It's like, what's this one called? Um, 
Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35. He just makes these up. Right. So for the actual title, Dylan said, well, I don't even recall exactly how it came up, but I know it was all in good faith. I don't know who thought of that. I certainly didn't. <laughs> and of course, the Kremlinologists have noticed that the album title spells the initials of Dylan's first name, B-O-B. Yeah, okay. It's also a riff on Brecht on Brecht, a stage production based on works by Bertolt Brecht that had influenced Dylan's early songwriting. So, yes, where is the blonde? Yeah, what's Who's the blonde? blonde? I always thought that he, he, I was trying to see, is he blonde? That's what I used to think, but he's not. It's not, there's no, he's not blonde. He's never the been blonde. The record is kind of blonde. The color of the record is blonde. The, well, it's dirty yeah. blonde. So it's like blonde. Um, I don't know. I've always wondered about that. Well, if you look at the pictures of, I, I think it's pronounced Susie Rotolo. So the girlfriend that was on the cover of the Free Will and Bob Dylan, she looks blonde. She is a blonde. I always imagined Johanna was blonde. blonde. I don't know why. Maybe because it's well, from it, the album, Blonde on Blonde, but yeah, suggestive. Yeah. But the, the, the kind of thing that Dylan would, you know, come up with song titles just at the last minute. And, and that's interesting. You know, most people, if they're poets, the title is really important because it's the gateway into a poem and the same thing with a song. And yet for him, it's just, I don't care. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, Zappa used to do the same thing, not to compare the two. But I mean, we, since we mentioned Zappa early, he would also just come up with silly, you know, whatever was on his mind, and then the song would become that. Yeah, but Zappa Silly is a different kind Absolutely. of silly. It's a kind of like almost, you know, Monty Python type of yeah. silly, whereas it's it's hard to know with Dylan, and obviously that changed a lot over the years, but in this early period, he seemed to have done that quite often. So I kind of wondered if we could would talk about this album for an hour, and in some ways, it's such a great album that there's not a lot to say about it. The music really speaks for itself. It really does. Um the only thing I wanted to say, and after listening to it again, was I feel bad for Louise. Because <laughs> uh, she's the one that's making him, she's like second rate. She's the one that's making him think of Johanna. And I feel, I've, I feel bad for Louise. I wonder, if, wonder what Louise is doing tonight. <laughs> Thank you to our Patreon patrons. They are supporting the show, and we appreciate that very much. You can become a Patreon patron as well. Just visit patreon.com slash the next track just commit to a couple of bucks a month or so and that keeps the show going and keeps us happy and keeps you listening and everybody's happy okay we can do our next tracks now okay my next track this week and i've just taken about five minutes to find it on the website that sells it so i'm going to take this link now and i'm going to save it to an app where i save stuff some months ago i went to the dgm live website this is the king crimson website where they sell King Crimson, live concerts, Robert Fripp, etc. And I signed up for a year's subscription. And you get a bunch of stuff like half price and you get some free stuff. I don't even know. I figured, let's, you know, let's support the band and let's support Fripp and, and download a bunch of old Fripp stuff. And I downloaded a whole bunch of Frippertronics from the 70s and the 80s because I really like that. Frippertronics is when Fripp came up with this tape loop system that he would play one thing, it would loop and it would morph and he'd play over it, et cetera, et cetera. This morning I was listening to something from May 30, 1979 in Paris at Le Trompe d'Oeil, misspelled on the webpage. 
It's Music for Restaurants 1. says 49 minutes on the webpage. It's actually one hour and 49 seconds. It's probably one of the longest Frippertronics recording, continuous recordings. It's a one-hour piece, whereas a lot of the other performances, he'll do a loop for 10, maybe 20 minutes, stop and start another one. And it's just mesmerizing. I, I just love that stuff. And I've got like 50 different Frippertronics live recordings that I downloaded from the site. You can buy a whole tour. It's like half the price of the individuals. And I figured, okay, I got a hundred bucks credit. So I'm just going to buy a bunch of Frippertronics. And the audio quality is excellent. It's from a quarter inch tape. So it's not like an audience recording. The descriptions, probably our friend Sid Smith wrote all these descriptions on the website. With drifting sonorous notes wreathed in an analog sizzle, the first 30 minutes are concerned with creating a slow but steady space. Only then does the guitarist begin to introduce a sequence of bass end notes, which if not exactly darker in tone are certainly more ominous in character. The change in key at around the 39 minute mark sees Fripp shifting into the end game. Cool stuff if you like Frippertronics. There's not a lot of Frippertronics on normal releases like what you can get on streaming services. I do have a CD of Frippertronics that I bought years ago. It's no longer in print, I think. And I don't know why. He, he's got a lot of these. He's got the Frippertronics and he's got the Soundscapes. And we've talked about the Soundscapes in the past, which are these more complicated ambient pieces that aren't just, you know, guitar and tape loop. But for some reason, the Frippertronics stuff, it, it only goes to the captive audience of King Crimson fans. And I'll tell you, it is impossible to find anything on this website. There's no search box on the main page. You can find search boxes in some weird locations. I searched for this. I couldn't find it by name, by date. If you want to sell your music, you should make it possible for people to find it, is all. So it's Robert Fripp, some Frippertronics from 1979. What about you? I'm going to be listening to, and I heartily recommend, the sensational Alex Harvey band, U.S. Tour 74, live. And I'll tell you why I heartily recommend it. I missed out when these guys were, were active, when they were vital in the early 70s. Didn't pay any attention to them at all. Even though they were pretty popular in the United Kingdom, they were pretty popular in Europe and every, well, everywhere but the United States. Didn't hear them on the radio, didn't know much about them. However, there was a guy in college, he had this esoteric record collection. He, he liked uh, British glam and British pop and stuff like that. He had a lot of status quo and David Bowie and stuff like that. But he also would try to evangelize the sensational Alex Harvey band to us. And we just didn't want to have anything to do with it. It's too difficult to listen to. You couldn't nail down their, their style. If you heard one song, the next song would be completely different and you, you didn't know what they were doing. Zoom forward to the early part of this century, and I guess someone got a hold of their live recordings or their catalog or whatever, and there seemed to be a resurgence for an appreciation of the sensational Alex Harvey band, and this is one of the albums that came out. I happened to see it on uh, listed on on Amazon or something, and I said, you know what, I'm finally gonna I'm finally gonna give the Alex Harvey band a, a chance, and they really are terrific. Uh, they they do have a wide. Uh, let me just put it like this: the Wikipedia article for them says their music veered from glam rock to experimental jazz around a core of experimental and avant-garde rock. That's about right. They do. They can do rock. They can do blues. They can do music hall. They can do all kinds of different music. They had a hit with Tom Jones' Delilah. And then there's some other stuff on this album that is truly heavy rock. And it's really just an amazing group of guys doing a very eclectic batch of music. Very popular, like I say, around the world, except the United States. And I have developed this great appreciation for them. Check out this album. And if you listen to only one song, listen to Midnight Moses. That's a 
fabulous rock song. The Sensational Alex Harvey Band, U.S. Tour 74, live, is my next track. This was episode number 216 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, and your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.